I don't know about you, but some of my favorite videos to watch online are the ones where people use the equipment in the gym the incorrect way. I know what you may be thinking, Chris, how often do you really go to the gym? This is how I get my workout. I laugh at people who are in the gym trying to work out. But what's funny is you see these people exert themselves at a very high level, but all of their exertion is done in a way that transgresses or violates the design of the machine, and it means that they're not getting the results that they should. And it's not like they have to guess about how they should use the equipment. If you've ever been in a gym or looked at a piece of gym equipment, it has pictures that show you the correct movements. It even has words. So if you're not good with words, you can look at pictures. If you're not good with pictures, read the words. They leave no guesswork about how the machine should be used. But there are people, often caught on camera, who want the machine to operate a certain way. They want the machine that was designed with one correct movement, or maybe a few correct movements, but a machine that was designed with correct movements meant to yield results for certain parts of the body. These people want it to do something it was never designed to do. All that said, it does make for a good laugh for me while I sit on the couch and stuff my face with Little Debbie's or Starburst jelly beans or ice cream, depending on the mood I'm in. And sometimes I get a little bit on my computer screen because I laugh too hard and a little ice cream comes out, but that's all right. <laughs> on a similar but much more tragic note is when we, disciples of Jesus, try and live out the life of a disciple without looking to the example of Jesus in the Gospels and the testimony of the rest of Scripture. God hasn't left us on our own with no pictures or no words about what life in the kingdom of God should look like. In fact, he has provided an abundance of direction if we would be willing to submit to and follow his lead. It's my prayer that after our time today, we would be resolved both individually and collectively to give ourselves to maximizing the impact of our lives and our church for as long as God allows. So that at the end of our lives, we would look back with glad-hearted joy at how God used us and not with regret that we exerted ourselves for things that don't matter in the end. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess our dependence on you. To be a disciple, to live as a disciple, to be faithful as a disciple is all the work of you and the Spirit and the Father in our life. It's a concerted effort of the work of God in our life to be disciples. And so we just confess tonight our need for your wisdom, for your strength, for your understanding, for your power to be at work in us so that we could live faithful lives as disciples. And Father, we give you praise that you have not left us fumbling around in the dark wondering what life as a disciple may look like, but you've given us concrete direction and very clear word pictures and other examples to follow of what life in the kingdom looks like. But a lot of the times for that to happen in our life, it means that we can't come asking discipleship to be something that meets our needs as we see them. But we have to approach discipleship as something we submit to, trusting that if we will follow, if we will submit, if we will obey, the work of discipleship in our lives will have its intended effect, and we will come to look more and more like our Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.
Amen. Mark 3, we're going to read 7 through 12 first, says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. When we closed out our time last week, we saw the Pharisees leave the temple in frustration and anger towards Jesus for healing the man with the withered hand. And they immediately go to the Herodians, people that they had nothing in common with, and they begin to plot together how can we eliminate the threat of Jesus how can we discredit him or end his life and so in response to that Jesus and the disciples begin to migrate uh, north along the shore of the Sea of Galilee they leave Capernaum behind and they're moving towards where the Jordan River enters the lake undeterred by his retreat the crowds follow him in mass to his more remote location at this point, Mark highlights the spread of Jesus' fame and ministry by pointing out the surrounding regions that people have come from to be healed by Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you just, if, when we're reading through this, if you're like, okay, I know where the Sea of Galilee is, and I know where Tyre and Sidon would be, and I know where Idumea would be, so I know rough. How many of you know how far that means people have come? I didn't know until I read in my study Bible. These people were giving large chunks of their time. They were giving up work and care for their own families in order to be before Jesus to be healed. Idumea was 120 miles due south of Galilee. That's 120 miles at best for these people on a donkey. And donkeys don't go very fast. Or it's 120 miles on foot. That is a long distance to cover without an automobile, a plane, or a train. It reminds me of when my dad and I were visiting uh, Waco, Texas, when I was deciding about going to seminary at Baylor, and we had left Waco to drive down to visit a friend of mine in San Antonio. And when we were driving down, we would look out on the vast flatness of Texas, and my dad and I would just point to a thing, make sure we both were looking at the right thing, and we would say, do you think you could walk there in a day? Because it's just, it's so far away. You'd be like, could you really cover that much ground in one day? Now imagine setting out from here roughly trying to cover 120 miles. That's like walking from here to Raleigh. All for the hopes that you could be close enough that Jesus would heal you or your family member. Tyre and Sidon were 50 miles north of Galilee, and Jerusalem itself was a three to five day walk, depending on if you went through Samaria or not. Here's what we see about the life and ministry of Jesus just in these few verses. His fame had spread, and it had already transgressed or moved outside of the borders of the nation of Israel. There were non-Jewish people making their way to see this Jewish man in hopes that he would heal them. You see Jesus beginning to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy of the new people of God being a light to the Gentiles because the Gentiles are starting to make their way to Jesus to be healed. Why all these people flocked to Jesus as he moved further into isolation was because they knew what Jesus could do for them. Anyone in here love going out Black Friday shopping? 
not Thursday. Like, don't be a cheater. The original Black Friday shopping. Nobody, like one or two of you, like it? I love going out for the late night, early morning people watching. Like, it is a real treat to see people somewhere between midnight and 3 a.m. out trying to act coherent and put together while they're searching for these deals. And there's also just this general excitement that fills the air. However, you do have to be careful if you end up near the front of the line before a store opens because the surge and the push of people from behind you puts you in danger of being trampled. And inevitably, every year, no matter how early they open the store or how they stagger the sales, never fails somewhere during the course of Black Friday or even into Saturday, news reports begin to trickle out of people who were trampled and seriously harmed or injured because everybody was trying to get to a very limited resource. This is perhaps the most accurate comparison for the scene surrounding Jesus in Mark 3, 9 through 11. Mark says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Jesus is concerned for his and his disciples' safety to the point that he has a boat, which is, for their cases was a modern-day getaway car, on standby should the crowd begin to press on them too hard. Should it become a point where Jesus is actually physically in danger of being harmed? Because all the crowds wanted Jesus for was what he could do to alleviate their immediate felt and known needs, both physically and mentally. They were willing to further harm one another if it meant getting to Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. You're there, you're sick or lame, or you have brought someone who is sick or lame. Everyone has the same goal. Get to Jesus and maybe just barely touch him. People were willing to further harm one another just to have their needs met. Jesus wasn't in danger of running out of power. Jesus wasn't in danger of coming up short in his ability to heal. But people didn't have a clear understanding of who he was and what he was capable of doing. But what you also find lacking in this whole passage is that there's never any indication that the crowds were interested in the message Mark said Jesus came proclaiming, which was repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. The crowds had zero interest in the message of Jesus, but they had a hundred percent interest in the methods of Jesus to heal them. And Mark over and over and over again, as we've previously talked about in the ESV study Bible points out, Mark often emphasizes how the crowd's excessive attention to Jesus' miracles is a frequent problem causing the crowds to miss the true purpose of his ministry. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. On top of everyone pushing their way up, trying to touch Jesus or get their sick friends or family members before Jesus, those who were demon-possessed were being violently thrown to the ground as they got within a certain radius of Jesus. This just adds to the chaos. Imagine a crush of people pressing forward, and then imagine that people just start being thrown violently to the ground and convulsing. This is not a 
normal scene. There's nothing about this that maybe we normally picture when we read, oh, well, the crowds are pressing in around him like gently, like, oh, let me but just touch him. Or, you know, this is sheer, utter chaos. Screams of demon-possessed people as they're flailing about on the ground, as the demons inside of them recognize Jesus. So you've got demons confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus telling those demons, do not tell people who I really am because they can't fully understand me until I go to the cross. Then you've got this loud throng crush of people. This is sheer chaos. But Jesus doesn't throw up his hands. Jesus just continues as he can and as he chooses to heal, to cast out, to care for the people. And I think there's an encouragement there for us. No matter how chaotic our lives get, we're always to go to Jesus. No matter how much we feel like maybe our need isn't the greatest need, we are still to go to Jesus. Because now, Jesus isn't here in earthly form. Jesus sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. We will never overwhelm Jesus with our requests, with our prayers, with our confessions of our needs for him, be it physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. In any way, in any capacity, Jesus will never be overwhelmed. But we also have to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of the crowd, which is only ever approaching Jesus when we need something from him. And becoming less and less interested in his message and more and more interested in what he can just do for us. For when we see and really wrap our minds around the chaos of that moment, I think it also helps encourage us to think about our lives and go, Jesus will never be too overwhelmed. Never be too pressed upon to hear us when we come to him. Mark provides this brief summary as a means of reminding us of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is capable of doing. All of this sets the stage for what comes next in the life and ministry of Jesus and those who follow him. This serves, this last little 7 through 12 really serves as a synopsis of all that's happened from the opening of Mark's gospel until now. Mark recaps everything and then he is going to, starting in the next section that we're going to look at tonight, from now until almost the end of chapter 6, he is going to push the story forward at a very fast rate. And so Mark wants his readers and those who would have first heard his gospel to remember who Jesus is, what Jesus has come to do primarily, which is proclaim the kingdom of God, but also what he's capable of doing, which is to heal and to cast out demons. Mark says, remember all of this. Remember that he really is the son of God, even though the crowds around him don't realize it yet. Because if you don't remember it, reader, if you don't remember it, listener, then the next parts of what Jesus does are not going to make any sense in your life. So this is what Mark writes in 13 through 19. And he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Benadris, that is, sons of thunder. 
Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. In the immediate aftermath of the chaos by the sea, which sounds like a sweet WWE pay-per-view, maybe more similar to what it was than what it wasn't, Jesus goes up onto a nearby mountain to pray. And what we know from the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, is that he went up on the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer. Then as the new day dawns, Jesus from the mountainside calls 12 men to be with him as his disciples. Now this was out of step with the current practice of the rabbis and disciples in first century Judaism. In first century Judaism, the norm was for a pupil or a disciple to approach a rabbi and ask to be given permission to follow the rabbi, to be accepted by the rabbi. The rabbi never went out and recruited disciples to follow him. The same way that we go about selecting colleges today. We don't wait for a college to approach us and say, man, we would really love to have you be a part of what we're doing at such and such university. We simply apply. We send out application after application. We bleed our parents or our grandparents or our aunts and uncles' bank accounts dry paying these application fees, wanting to hear back from the one or two universities to have options before us of, I want to go here and learn because they have this certain degree track that really helps me become who I want to be and do the things I want to do with my life. In much the same way as the rabbis made their way in and around Jerusalem, men of age would go to them and ask to be included. They would pick a rabbi who taught a certain section of the law or who taught a certain social way, and they would say, you teach in the way that I want to follow. I want to give my life to following and learning from you. Never was it a rabbi who would appear desperate enough to go out and call people to himself. But that's exactly what Jesus does. Why does he do this? Because he is not interested in following the tradition of the day, but he is interested in showing how he continues to fulfill the new exodus of God's people by reconstituting God's people around himself in the disciples who will be used to carry the light of the gospel to the nations through the church, the true Israel of God. For Jesus to be on the mountainside and to call the people to him and then to lay out in very brief verses that we're going to look at what it looks what we're going to look at what it looks like to be a disciple is very reminiscent of being out in the wilderness as the people of Israel were led out of Egypt and Moses goes up onto the mountain and receives the law of God and receives the commands of God and then constitutes the nation of Israel under the law of God in Exodus. Jesus is doing much the same thing, but it's a new Exodus. It's a new covenant that Jesus is ushering in. And so he calls 12 to himself in a clear allusion to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he begins to tell them here on the mountainside what life in the kingdom as a disciple will look like. And now the translation of the Greek to English loses some of the power of what Jesus was doing in calling the disciples to himself. In verse 13 it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. The more correct translation of called in that verse is he that he willed or he made the 12. 
Now, there's only one in history who has the ability to will something into existence, and it is God himself, the creator. There has only ever been one God, one person capable of willing or creating where before there was nothing, and it's God himself. And so when it says that Jesus called, if you, ha- if you make notes or you want to make a little note, it actually is better to read that as Jesus willed or Jesus made the twelve. Not only that, but Jesus named the men he called to himself apostles. You could almost draw out the parallels of the creation account. That this is the instituting of a new creation where Jesus wills these men to be his disciples. And then much like Adam in the garden who named the animals, so the second Adam names the apostles. He gives them a name that begins to shape who they are and what they do. As James Edwards points out in his commentary, in the biblical world, the right to name belonged to a superior, a maker, a master, a parent who determined the essence and purpose of the thing named. After calling and naming these men, Jesus sets about giving us and them the job description for what it means to be an apostle and a true disciple of Jesus. Now, don't let the use of the word apostle in verse 14 throw you off. This is actually the only time you're going to see apostle used in Mark Apostle, in this instance, is going to be interchangeable with disciple. So I'm just going to talk about disciples for the rest of our time together because this is the marching orders not only for the first 12 that Jesus called, but for every person down through the ages whom God has called to himself. This is where we begin to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. The call to being a disciple constitutes two distinct purposes. Notice what it says in 14. After he says that he named them apostles, it says, so that they might be with him. This is the first, and the order here matters. This is the first of the two distinct purposes, and it is the relational element. That is the call to be with Jesus. Because we believe that the Bible is fully inspired by God and infallible and inerrant, we believe that the order of the words matters. And so when Jesus says that he called them to be with him before he sends them out, that means that we understand that we are first called as disciples to be with Jesus before we ever attempt to do anything for Jesus. Before they could be sent out and entrusted to preach the gospel and wield authority appropriately to cast out demons, the disciples needed to be with the one who had called them to himself. At the end of the day, there is simply no substitute in the life of a disciple for unhurried time with Jesus. For the original disciples, it meant three plus years of watching and learning from Jesus as he lived out what life in the kingdom looked like. And for us, that means daily time in the scriptures and in prayer. If you're going into certain fields of medicine or dental surgery, or various other specialties that require a lot of schooling, once your schooling is done, you're not just immediately turned loose into the world to practice your craft. You have to serve in an apprenticeship, or you have to serve as a resident in the medical field. 
where you spend day in and day out time watching people do the job that you want to do to learn exactly how to do it. And you want that doctor who showed up to every one of his residency rotations to be the one operating on you. You don't want the guy who tried to get somebody else to go stand in for him to be the one that shows up and says, oh, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but let's get into the OR. And in much the same way, we treat our walk with Jesus like we just show up into moments and expect to say, well, I read my Bible three months ago, so we're good. Let's just go. And Jesus doesn't require us, as we become disciples, to spend X amount of time with him before we can begin to be about the ministry that he's called us to as disciples. But oftentimes what happens is we get so enamored with doing that we never stop to ask ourselves if we spend enough time with Jesus to be trusted to go out and do what he's called us to do. And so this looks different for everybody. There's no, like, this is the messy part of discipleship in our own lives and in the life of the church. This thing goes all over the place. Unlike in medical school or welding or whatever apprenticeship you may fall under, there is no straight line trajectory in the life of a disciple. But it involves spending time with Jesus, going out, living on mission, doing the ministry that he's given us, then coming back to Jesus, talking through what we've done, what we've attempted to do, gaining a better understanding from Scripture and from community and from those who are walking alongside of us in this life, what it looks like to be more effective the next day as we seek to follow Jesus. As James Edwards notes, Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. A who before a what. If the essence of sin is substituting a false God for the true God, being with Jesus becomes the way of forsaking human idols and honoring the true God, thus recovering the image of God. To be with Jesus is the most profound mystery of discipleship. When was the last time that you thought about discipleship and you thought that the most profound mystery in all of it was simply being with Jesus? Or did you think the most profound mystery of discipleship was what you may do for Jesus? We, we hear this and we immediately bristle at it because we've been conditioned from our very first report card to judge our usefulness based off of what we can do and what we can accomplish. We often start in our Christian life as we become disciples, we often start with doing and we continue to do without ever stopping to ask the question of who we are actually serving in our doing. And there are untold stories of pain and regret where sincere followers of Jesus spent so little time with Jesus before they went out to try to do in Jesus' name that they did more harm than good. And so Jesus says, first, come spend some time with me. First, come learn from me. First, come just enjoy being in my presence. We'll get to the going out and the preaching and the casting out of the demons in a little while. But first, would you just come spend some time with me? We end up, sadly, like those in the gym, 
where we expend high levels of energy in our pursuit of Jesus without maximizing our potential because we aren't following the rules or the structure for what discipleship really looks like. And all of this begs us to ask the question of ourselves, when was the last time we blocked off uninterrupted, unhurried time simply to be with Jesus? We talked last week about our struggle to embrace Sabbath as a struggle to embrace rest. And I would say right behind that or right alongside of that struggle to embrace rest as those whose most important work has been done for them in Jesus. Outside of that, we struggle to put in our calendars time to be with the Father, time to be with our Savior, time to be in the Word. We will adjust our schedule at a moment's notice for anything that comes into life that is appealing, for anything in life that appears to make our most immediate felt need met, and we will constantly push unhurried time with Jesus back in the line of our life until it's so far beyond us that we don't even consider a day a waste if we go through it without spending time with Jesus. The call of a disciple is a call to reorient all of our life around the person of Jesus. And I believe James Edwards was right, that the most profound mystery of discipleship is simply to be with Jesus. But to be with Jesus in unhurried time takes work on our part. It takes an intentional desire to want to be with Jesus. And then he goes on, and he says this, not only that they might be with him, but that he might send them out to preach. The second distinct purpose in the life of a disciple is to be sent out to both proclaim the good news and also to have authority to drive out demons. But first, let's address this idea of being sent out to proclaim the good news. For the disciples then and us now, the only way we can be sure we are proclaiming the good news and later exercising correct spiritual authority is based off of our being committed to time with Jesus. And how do we spend time with Jesus? Through the word and in prayer and through songs that draw our attention to the beauty and the majesty and the mystery of who God is and what he has done for us. It's through slowing down to appreciate the world, even though it is wrecked by sin, appreciating the beauty of the world God has given us. And so often we struggle to rightly tell the story of the gospel because we spend so little time thinking about and remembering the gospel ourselves. If you spend enough time with Jesus, unhurried time, enjoying Jesus and watching Jesus in history through the Gospels and then seeing how Jesus is asking us to live our life, then sharing the Gospel, personal evangelism, should become easier and easier and easier. But so often for us, we become so intimidated by this command of a disciple to go out and to preach the good news because we've just forgotten what the good news is. Because I would, I would make a very strong case that if I were to hand out paper to everyone in here, 
and we were to write out our definition of what the gospel is, we would have almost a different telling of the same story from each person in here. So I want you to hear this. As it concerns preaching or proclaiming the gospel, we are called to simply relate the story of God's saving work in Jesus. This is what James Edwards says, and I think it helps demystify so much of our apprehension about evangelism when he says, The gospel is not an ineffable mystery beyond words, but a story, the story of Jesus, that can be articulated and understood in common language. The proclamation is not the verbalizing of the subjective experience of the believer, but the making known of the saving activity of God in Jesus. The correct proclamation of the truth, then, is not the verbalizing of our subjective experience as a believer, but it is the making known of the saving activity of God in Jesus. Does that not just cause you to breathe a sigh of relief as you consider what true proclamation looks like versus what we've built it up in our heads to be? You have a testimony, a story about how God has pursued you, how God has drawn you to himself, how God has saved you from sin and from death and given you righteousness and given you life. But the true proclamation of the gospel is not your subjective experience of it. The true proclamation of the gospel is the historical truth of what God has done in Jesus. And that's what Christ calls us to go out and share. Which means you don't have to worry about sharing too little or too much of your own story. It means that you don't have to worry about getting your story exactly right because you're not primarily going out to tell your story. You're going out to tell the one story that all of history hinges on. And it is the story of God's saving activity in Jesus. But you can't know the truth of God's saving activity in Jesus unless you're spending time with Jesus. And so unhurried time with Jesus more familiarizes us with the gospel as we see it working in our own life. And we become more confident in our ability to correctly tell folks about the good news of the saving activity of God in Jesus. And lastly, Jesus commissions the disciples by his power being at work in them to cast out demons. Now, this ability to both proclaim the gospel and cast out demons is, as Leroy Hazingo sa says, the disciples' success in these endeavors, preaching and driving out demons, derives from their faith in Jesus' power in them. Our success in proclaiming the gospel, our success in confronting demonic activity where we see it, is never to be dependent on our own strength or our own ability. Our belief, our success in these endeavors is always tied to our faith in Jesus' power at work in us. 
So when Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and to cast out demons, he does it fully aware that it will only happen as his power is at work in them. Now, we may throw up our hands here and say, all right, well, what good does that do us, Chris? Uh, I've not seen any demons recently. Like, I've not been anywhere where somebody has convulsed and thrown themselves down in front of me, and they've shrieked that they know that I'm a disciple of Jesus, and then they've, like, left this person. I mean, we're well beyond belief in such things, aren't we? We can medically diagnose almost all of the sicknesses that were labeled as demon possession in the first century. Come on, Chris, we're so far past this. Surely there's something more here for, like, what does this really mean for us? And while there is some truth in this sentiment that some of what they would label demon possession we now know is sickness of varying kinds, it's not really the whole truth. Because there has never ceased to be a time since Genesis 3 when we've not lived with the demonic at work in the world in which we live. And one of my favorite movies of all time is The Usual Suspects. I cannot recommend it in good faith from the pulpit, but after I leave here, I'll tell you that it's not safe for work. Anyway, one of the key lines in there, Kevin Spacey delivers. They're talking about this criminal that nobody's seen. He's kind of a figment of people's imagination named Kaiser Soze, and they're talking about it. And Kevin Spacey looks at the detective interviewing him, and he says, you know the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that for us as believers today. We really, really don't believe that Satan exists. Because we know that Satan's been defeated. We know that ultimately Jesus has crushed Satan on the cross and that there is coming a day when he will bind Satan and destroy him, send him to hell forever. But that's not right now. And I think one of the greatest things that Satan has told us is don't worry about me. I'm not your concern. And we've just said, you know what, you're right. It's not a big deal. The demonic is not a big deal for us. We struggle in our rational thinking, our scientific thinking, to really grasp the reality that there is a spiritual world, a spiritual reality that is in play in our world today. I can remember being very naive about the actual reality of darkness and spiritual oppression for most of my young adult life. But it was in the spring of 2005, we took a trip to New Orleans for spring break. And we had gone into downtown New Orleans at night. And they said, all right, you can go here to here. But once you get to this street, don't go any further past. They're like, it's just not safe for you to go beyond that. And so I want to say we were in Jackson Square. I could be wrong. But we turned a corner. And it was just a line down both sides of the avenue of tables set up. And it was tarot card readers, it was astrological sign readers, it was palm readers, it was psychics. Row after row, table after table, people standing up and sitting down, paying money. And as I stood there, there was a feeling of darkness hanging over that street. There was a feeling of oppression. There was the real reality that I was standing in the presence of the demonic. I can't describe it in any other way, and if you've never experienced it, that's going to sound maybe a little bit crazy. But that was when I first understood 
we're not playing a game with an enemy that doesn't care what's happening. We're not living a life where the enemy is largely willing to sit on his hands and not be actively trying to destroy people's lives. This is real life. So not only is the demonic still very active in that regard, but because we live in a world marked by sin, we also see systems and structures in societies and cultures that perpetuate demonic oppression and strongholds. And so while we may not see the demonic in people being convulsed and thrown down on the street as demons shriek and fly out of them, we also live in a world and in a society where there is no such thing as perfectly righteous rule of law happening. And because sinful men and women make sinful policies, there are sinful demonic structures in place in our world and in our societies and in our cultures that work to keep people made in the image of God oppressed and defeated and in bondage. And one of the easiest ones for us to think of in the world today is racism. Racism is not just a cultural, our bad. Racism is birthed out of the very pits of hell, and it is meant to oppress and degrade and enslave those made in the image of God who deserve the right and the opportunity to flourish. So how do we respond to all this? How do we respond to things like racism? How do we respond to different ways in which we see the demonic at work around us? Again, James Edwards is helpful in his commentary when he says this, Disciples are not simply defined by what they stand for, but also what they stand against. They are commissioned to confront demonic and evil powers, however they manifest themselves, and to confront them not only in thought and word, but in action. When I grew up, and how I grew up in Southern Baptist life, we were always known for what we stood against. And then the pendulum swung way over here, and it said, well, don't ever let people know what you're against. If you'll just let them know what you're for, they'll be far more likely to want to know about who Jesus is and what Jesus has, to the life that he has to offer them. And along the way, we just lost all of our spiritual backbone when it comes to looking at things that are wrong and saying, yes, that is sinful and that is wrong. And we as believers and followers of Jesus stand against it. We always, in all of our life, and it will be this way from now until Jesus calls us home, we're going to go back and forth between those two extremes. We'll let everybody know what we're for with no real concern about what we're against, and then eventually at some point that's going to swing back over, and we'll live most of our life letting people know what we're against and forgetting to tell them what we're for. But the life of a disciple is fighting to live in that tension of both proclaiming what we are for and proclaiming what we are against, all in hopes, and in prayers of seeing the kingdom of God advance in the world. And so Jesus says, come be with me, first and foremost. Come be with me. And then, when you're ready, you're going to go out. So notice, again, we, we live in the world of extremes. Most of us, and I, I, I lean this way, I stand over here 
And I say, my whole life is to be spent with Jesus. I need to know everything I can possibly know about everything before he would possibly trust me to go out and proclaim the good news and confront demonic activity and oppression where I see it. And there are others who stand way over here and they say, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time with Jesus. I can see what needs to be addressed and I'm going to address it with no care for how it comes across or what I accomplish in what I'm doing. I'll preach and I'll confront the demonic with no time spent with Jesus. Jesus says, you're going to come spend time with me and then you're going to go out and then you can come back and you're going to spend time with me and then you're going to go back out and you're going to come back in and you're going to go back out. And that is the life and rhythm of a disciple. Well, you have to answer the question of which side do you fall off on more frequently? Are you more concerned with being with Jesus and trusting that you'll never be with Jesus enough to really be trusted to be a disciple who could go out and do these things? Or do you struggle with thinking that being with Jesus is really a waste of precious time that you could be out doing the stuff that he wants you to do? Jesus says you've got to have both. And we're going to see it in Mark because he's going to send them out and they're going to come back. And then he's going to send them out and then they're going to come back. This all, this idea of proclaiming, being with Jesus and proclaiming the gospel and then exercising spiritual power has led in part to what we've adopted as our mission statement as a church, which, sa which says, Restoration Church exists to see people restored, which is gospel proclamation, and our city renewed, exercising of spiritual authority through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see happen in the life of our church. I don't talk about my sports teams often because nobody really likes them, especially the professional sports teams that I cheer for. But if there is one thing that has made the New England Patriots as successful as they've been for the past 19 going on 20 years, it's this. They have a very simple motto. Do your job. If you go from anywhere else in the NFL or from college, and you go to play for the New England Patriots, they do not care who thinks you're as good as you think you are. They don't care how much money you've made. They don't care what the accolades are that you have in your trophy room at home. You come in, they have a system, and they want you to fit into that system, no questions asked. They do not change their system to fit the preferences of the people they bring in they bring in people who would submit all of their personal goals and all of their personal desires to the team's goal of winning a championship and i'm not saying that the new england patriots because they cheat a lot i'm gonna be honest they cheat the new england patriots are not a one-to-one -one example of what the church looks like but I think there is something there for us to consider in coming into the church, laying down our preferences, laying down our personal agendas, and saying we want to submit to the rule of Christ in our life to see the kingdom of God advance, both to see those who are far from Christ come to know Christ and be welcomed into the family, and to see those areas of our culture and society that are systemic structures of sin torn down so that people would know and experience the freedom of the gospel but you can't make church you can't make discipleship all about what you want out of life it has to be a willing subjection of what you would prefer for what you know is the power of god at work in you 
So in a lot of ways, what Jesus says on the mountainside is, do your job. Jesus offers no wiggle room. Just like those machines in the gym are designed to work a certain way to produce a certain result, so the life of a disciple is meant to hold a certain shape and look a certain way to produce a desired result, which is the formation of Christ in us and the advancement of God's gospel around the world. But we get to make the choice every day of if we will do our job or if we will stake our claim on the hill of our preferences and not budge in service to God until he bows the knee to our desires. That's the decision we make every day. At the end of the section, verses 16 through 19, Mark tells us the names of the 12 who Jesus called to himself. We easily recognize Peter, James, John, and for tragic and infamous reasons, Judas. But yet there are eight other names listed there. Those eight are mentioned sporadically throughout the Gospels and other New Testament writings. We aren't even sure to a large degree of what exactly they did in helping to push the Gospel forward in the first century. Nevertheless, they were with Jesus and entrusted as faithful disciples, just the same as the other super apostles we all know about. Let me close with one final quote from James Edwards that I hope would serve as an encouragement to us as we stand in line with those disciples who have gone before us. This is what Edwards says. Their names, meaning the other eight, however, like the even longer list of names in Romans, 1, or Romans 16, 1 through 16, stand as silent witnesses to the truth that the existence of the church is indebted to the labors of those who for the most part remain unknown and unnamed. Jesus called 12 men to him, one who he knew would betray him. Three others that we know a lot about. And there are eight other men, largely unnamed and unknown. And they got the same opportunity to be with Jesus. And they were given the same commission to go and proclaim the gospel and to cast out demons. And I know this can be hard to believe. But he didn't make a mistake in calling you to be his disciple either. And he's commissioned you with the same power and the same spirit at work in your life to proclaim the gospel and exercise spiritual power as you seek to be obedient. In the history of the church, we, meaning us in here, will more than likely remain unknown and unnamed. There will probably not be a biography of Christian history written about us in this room. And that is okay. But our impact, if we fully embrace living as a disciple of Jesus, will join with the ever-growing crescendo of voices that echo in perfect harmony throughout eternity, proclaiming, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let's pray.